This is Birth Aloud Radio, where we challenge the status quo around that most basic human right, how, where, and with whom we are allowed to give birth. I'm your host, Kristen Piscucci. Hey everybody, this is Kristen. I just wanted to let you know that this episode involves alleged sexual assault and obstetric assault. So listen with caution. Also, if you've had a bad experience at a Philadelphia area hospital, please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. If you've had any kind of experience involving obstetric assault or sexual assault in the obstetric setting, please share your story at birthmonopoly.com slash obstetric dash violence. Today on Birth Aloud Radio... We're talking with Catherine DePaulo. She's a licensed clinical social worker in Pennsylvania and the mother of two children. Catherine works in public child welfare for Montgomery County. Catherine said she was sexually assaulted by a doctor at a hospital outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Catherine reached out to me several months ago to share her story. And I think one of the things she wants the most is to get it out there and let other people know what happened. And if there are other people out there who something like this happened to, to please contact us and we'll see where it goes from there. Well, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for being willing to tell this story, which is harrowing and difficult and it's difficult to listen to. It's a lot more difficult to share, I'm sure. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we've shared your full name. At this point, we're not planning on sharing the hospital's full name or the doctor's full name. And I recognize the irony in that. But, you know, we wanted to make sure that this story could stay up without legal challenges. (laughs) So, um, you know, people are welcome to contact us for more details. Absolutely. So Catherine, this was the birth of your son was in November of 2005. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened that night? Yes. Uh, So I was checked in to be induced on November 17th, 2005. I didn't have anyone with me. My husband had gone home with my eight-year-old daughter at the time. I was examined by my OBG, my regular OBGYN, who stated that I was three centimeters dilated um, and that in the morning I, they would start Pitocin to induce. She also uh, ordered complete bed rest and I had expressed to her that, you know, I wasn't comfortable with the cervical exams. And so that if I needed to be examined, you know, I would prefer to have my husband present or, you know, the doctor present, my regular doctor present. She assured me that she had ordered complete bed rest. No one should bother me. I should sleep for the night. And in the morning, they were going to start the Pitocin. So my daughter and my husband left at about, you know, 11.15-ish or so, and I kind of settled in, you know, to try to rest between 11, around midnight, maybe between 11.30 and midnight, around midnight, uh, someone that was dressed in green scrubs who looked like a doctor came in and was telling me there was something wrong with the fetal monitor and he was checking the monitors. He had actually switched out one of the monitor wires and replaced it and then came back into the room. He was sort of in and out of the room indicating he was checking these monitors and then uh, came back into the room and said, I need to check you. And I said, oh, I I don't think so. I was put on bed rest and um, I was told 
no one was to check me, you know, um, that I didn't need it. My doctor just checked me. She just left, you know, maybe 20 minutes ago. And he said, I know I need to check you anyway. I asked him, are you a doctor or a nurse? And he said, well, I'm like a doctor. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm a doctor. And I asked his name and he pointed to a tag he was wearing. It was a gold tag with black lettering. And he didn't actually say the name on the tag out loud. He made me read it and I read it out loud and it said a name. Come to find out that he was misrepresenting himself. That wasn't really who he was. The name on the tag was actually a student uh, that he had been supervising. And I probably neglected to say that earlier in the evening when my husband and daughter were there and when the doctor was there, this same doctor came in with a group of students into my room and stood by the door with a like a clipboard and seemed to be supervising those students, taking them around the labor and delivery room to room. My husband recalls seeing him there and I remembered him and when he came back in in the middle of the night, I remembered him being there earlier that evening with the students. So he said, I have to check you. And he said, I explained, you know, I'm on bed rest. I don't think so. And I declined being checked. And he said, I know I need to check you anyway. And I said, well, I can we call my doctor to verify it because I was told and had some concerns, you know, that I wouldn't be checked at this point in time and didn't need to be checked. I was low priority. There was no, there were no complications. And the labor and delivery unit was very busy that night. There were babies being born, women in labor. I had a private room, so there was no one else in the room. And he said to me that, well, we could call the doctor, but I don't think the doctor would appreciate being woken up at this hour. So I said, well, can you contact my nurse? Uh, the nurse that was assigned to me had gone on break. She'd actually checked in with me before she left to go to break, telling me that she was not going to be at the nurse's station. She, was, she had some things she had to do, but that she would be back. So she was gone and she was assigned to me. She knew what the orders were, doctor's orders were. And so I asked him to contact her and to confirm with her that I was on bed rest and not to be, you know, disturbed. So he left the room, he came back, he said, oh, I can't get a hold of her. I tried to get a hold of the nurse and I can't get a hold of her. And I said, well, can I call my husband and get him, you know, he lives nearby, he can be here. And, you know, I don't recall exactly what he said to that, but he seemed as though he had some urgency, like, you know, well, I need to check you now. This went back and forth, me asking questions about why and why this was necessary and that I, you know, didn't want to do it and that I didn't feel comfortable, I was declining. And he just kept telling me that um, he, I know, but I need to check you anyway. So he then seemed to be frustrated and said, well, do you want a nurse? And I said, yes, <laughs> if, if I'm, you know, if I have to do this, I definitely want a nurse. So he left and got a nurse that was not the nurse assigned to me. And she came in, she popped her head in and she said, what do you need? And he said, I need to do a sweep. And I looked at him and I said, what's a sweep? At the time, I had no idea what that was. I hadn't experienced that with my first pregnancy. And his response to me was, it's nothing. It's just to check you. So the nurse came in and she stood by my head for a few minutes and he started to put his whole arm basically up into my vagina and started doing this sweep that I was told by him was just to check for dilation. Well, the sweep went on and was painful. And I kept asking questions like, this is really painful. I, your hand is very far up. Is this normal? And he just kept saying, yeah, it's normal. It's normal. And then at that point, 
that was the first sweep. And then the nurse said, I have to go. She got called out by some, by another nurse because it was very busy on the floor. And she said, don't worry, dear, you're in good hands. You know, I know this person, I know this doctor, you know, you're in good hands. I'll be back. Well, she never came back. And he proceeded to do several more sweeps. And I, again, kept asking questions, asking him, you know, why it was so painful. Was this normal? This didn't feel normal. And he just essentially ignored me and kept saying, yeah, this is normal. Yeah, this is normal. It's just to check you. And over what, what kind of a time period is this? This whole thing from start to finish was probably about... 45 minutes to an hour that this went on from start to finish. It started with the sweeps and then ended with the assaults. Although I do consider him giving me membrane sweeps without my permission, without my knowledge, an assault also, because I was never spoken to about that, had no idea what it was. So after the third or fourth time he swept. I closed my legs and thought it was over. And he then said, oh no, I'm not finished yet. And I said, you're not finished yet? I can't imagine that there would be much more to do here. And so he instructed me to open my legs back up and says to me, I need to do a rectal exam. Is that okay? And I kind of, I was very taken back. I was in shock. And I said, is that necessary? I don't understand why that's necessary. And he said, well, it's necessary because I need to do a strep B test. And I said, I responded to him by saying, well, I had a strep B test already done at seven months. I I don't understand why that's necessary. And I don't feel comfortable doing that. And he said, yeah, you know, we need to do another one here in the hospital. So he then penetrated my rectum and then inserted his, while his finger was in my rectum, he inserted another finger into my vagina simultaneously. I was just frozen and in shock and couldn't understand what kind of check this was. I was alone. At this point, the nurse had been long gone, had not returned. And, um, After he took his fingers out, I closed my legs again. There was silence and he he was sitting at the time on some type of stool. And I heard movement and kind of saw, he was wearing a white paper gown around the front of him. I noticed movement and it looked like to me, the impression I got was that he was touching himself. And I thought this is not, real. This isn't happening. I don't understand. And he really, you know, I'm there exposed and he's sitting in front of me with these movements with his hands towards his crotch area. And I just froze. I couldn't understand what was going on. It was an unusually long time that he sat there like this and had me, you know, there exposed. So after that, he, so he, he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything, just silence. And uh, he got up and I noticed there were blood, there was blood on the front of the paper white gown. And I said, am I, I asked him, am I bleeding? And he said, yeah, just a little bit. And then he took the gown off, he rolled it up into a ball and he threw it in the trash and he started leaving. No information no justification, no conversation. He just kind of seemed like he was in a hurry to get out of there. And so I call, as he was heading towards the door, I called him back and I said, wait a minute, you said I needed to have this check. What, you know, what's the information? Is everything okay? You know, I got the impression this, you know, you were saying this needed to be done. Like it was urgent. You needed to do this. And he just turned his head to me and said, yep, everything's fine and shut the door. So literally a minute, maybe a minute and a half, I felt where he, where those sweeps were happening, kind of his fingers were at the top, sort of almost 
almost up into my um, far up, like Perfect. near the rib cage, the top oh. of the rib cage almost. So that was the area that he was sort of stimulating and massaging when he was doing the sweeps. From that area, I felt a pop. And then the water broke. And I started to panic. I was pressing the nursing, the nurse button. No one was responding. Eventually, the nurse that was assigned to me came back from her break. She came in and she said, oh, your water broke, as if she was happy and it was this happy thing. And I said, no. A doctor was just in here, he examined me and he broke my water. And she said, that's strange. Someone examined you? And I said, yes, can you please go get him and tell him to come here, I wanna talk to him. And she said, hold on a second, I need to get you some towels because your water's broken. And so she came back with some towels and he was, when she opened the door to bring the towels in, he was actually right behind her holding a towel. And I made eye contact with him and he backed out and away and did not enter the room when the nurse came in with the towels. She asked me his name. I gave her the name that was on the tag. She said she didn't recognize that name. She asked me to describe the person. I described the person. And she said, oh, that sounds like, you know, Dr. B. And I said, oh, okay, well, can you ask Dr. B to come back here? Because I want to talk to him. I I want to ask him some questions. She said, are you sure you were examined? And I said, yes, I was examined. It was almost like she didn't believe me. So I pointed to the trash can and I said, look, there's the gown with my blood on it in the trash can. And she walked over to the trash can, she saw the gown and she said, oh yeah, she said, someone did examine you. I see the stuff in the trash. And she said, hold on, I'm gonna check and see if I can find him and I'll be back. Well, 20 minutes or so, half hour passed, she never came back. About a half hour later, she finally came back in and she said, the doctor that was in here examining you was Dr. B, and he, he left. He's no longer here. She just really did nothing about it. You know, I kept telling her he broke my water. This was not supposed to happen. I was, I'm supposed to be induced tomorrow. You know, just being checked in overnight to have Pitocin start in the morning, not expecting someone to come in and manually break my membrane and nor did I know what what exactly that was at the time. And she said, yeah, that was Dr. B, uh, but he wouldn't have examined you. And I said, no, he did, he did. And she said, are you sure, you know, and she rattled off a few more other doctors' names. And I said, no, no, none of those names sound familiar to me. You know, it's the person that was behind you walking in earlier. And he was in here earlier with the students and she actually made like she was confused and, you know, she really minimized the whole thing. She never documented it. She never reported it. She never did anything about it. She put in a note saying that I was evaluated by Dr. M at 3 a.m., which never happened. Dr. M didn't come in until 6 a.m. And I hadn't seen him before. He he certainly wasn't in at 3 a.m. because I was on the phone with my husband calling him and in distress telling him what what had happened. The following day, they started Pitocin. As soon as my regular doctor came, I told her what happened and she seemed annoyed. She said, well, I don't know who that could have been. And I said, well, I was thinking, you know, well, shouldn't you make it your business to find out who that was? And you know, like my water's broken here. And I'm telling you that this doctor came in, examined me and broke my water. And she seemed as though she was more concerned about, you know, the water being broken and now it's an emergency and, you know, we need to start Pitocin. And she really just dismissed my report and my concerns. And then at that point, um, you know, I was in labor for a while and later that day had to receive an emergency C-section and my baby was in distress. 
I had a fever and the baby was taken to the NICU. The following day, she, I was switched to, from labor and delivery to a regular room and I spoke to her about it again. And I said, did you find out which doctor came in and broke my water last night? And she said, you know, I'm trying to find out, you know, who it was and who was here. Um, as soon as I get any information, I'll let you know. If I can't get any information today at your post-op, I will let you know. And she said, if you have any concerns to address it with the hospital, the patient, patient services person that comes around, you know, to check in. And the patient services person came in and I, she seemed very young. She said she was new there. And I told her what happened and that I was to, you know, report it to the hospital. And she said that she would check with her supervisor but that I needed to tell my doctor. And I said, well, I did tell my doctor, but she told me to tell you. And uh, she said, well, maybe tell the nurse. I told the nurse that was caring for me. She said, I, she, what, she didn't work in labor and delivery. She didn't know who the doctors were there, you know, to address, to address it with the doctor. So I got a lot of confusing information. And at the same time, I was trying to be happy about this baby being born and I think part of me really repressed a lot uh, everything because I just wanted things to be okay no mother wants to believe that they were assaulted during labor and that they're you know no one wants the memory of their child's birth to be an assault so I very much repressed a lot of it although I did follow up at the post exam with my doctor about it. And she in fact confirmed, she said, yeah, it was Dr. B that came in there. He was just checking to see if you were dilated. And I said, well, he did a lot more than that. He did a rectal exam and then he did these sweeps and he had his finger in my vagina and all this. And she said, she said, oh yeah, it's right here in the chart. I see that you did have a strep B exam, a strep B test. I said, well, why was that necessary? I had one at seven months. And she just threw up her hands and said, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. Um, you can speak to the, the other doctor that it, the practice belonged to her. She said that she had spoken with this person too. And that if I had any questions to speak to her, but she did confirm it was Dr. B and that she, she didn't understand you know, why that strep B test had to be done. She insisted it was a spontaneous rupture of the membrane. And I said, no, it wasn't spontaneous, you know, in terms of regular process of being in labor, this doctor came in and he broke the water. He was doing these, what he said, sweeps and he, you know, broke it and you know, she said, well, I'll document everything you're saying and I'll document everything. And she basically did nothing from there. At the time I was going through a very contentious custody battle uh, with my ex-husband and my eight-year-old daughter. And so my focus kind of went to that because there were things happening like you know, my ex-husband was refusing to bring my daughter back from visits, that kind of thing. And it was, you know, I went from one crisis to the next. The focus was off of me and what had happened to me and on the safety of my daughter and this contentious custody battle I was in. And so things very quickly shifted away from what happened. And again, you know, no mother wants to believe that their labor process was a sexual assault. <laughs> and so I really did repress it for many years. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you confident supporting your clients and their rights? A must course for birth workers and worth one and a half contact hours towards your continuing education is my Know Your Rights Legal and Human Rights in Childbirth online course. Really understanding your clients' rights and the context for those rights 
is a game changer for both of you. It's not about conflict. It's about being calm and confident. You can do this. Go to bit.ly slash birth dash rights. The link is also in the show notes for this episode. So we're back with Catherine and we were just chatting a little bit over the break about her feelings about it and feelings of regret and guilt and shame. Can you talk about that a little bit? I was just saying that I, I really feel a sense of shame about it because I feel like I should have known better. I feel like I, you know, should have dialed 911. I should have asked more questions. I should have told him off, you know, yelled at him and told him to leave. And that I beat myself up over it quite a bit that I look back and think, well, I could have done this and I could have done that. And that I didn't do the things that I could have done. My therapist tells me that my body just went into survival mode and that had I had fought him or yelled at him or told him off or angered him, it could have been worse. It could have resulted in something worse. And that I was doing what I had to do to protect my baby and myself. Um, But I still have a lot of guilt and shame and anger at myself for not stopping it, not doing something, not, but again, my body was frozen and in shock. And um, it's, it's tough because I still beat myself up over it. So how did this affect you over the, the years between, you know, 2005 and, and last year? So I repressed, you know, what happened, although it never left, if, if, you know, I'm not sure if people can relate to where you, you know, something happened to you, but you're repressing it. I started to uh, have chronic insomnia. So at around midnight, every night, I'd wake up and not be able to get back to sleep. I started having panic attacks. I started to experience anxiety and depression. I started to have difficulty in my marriage. I I probably didn't go to a gynecologist after that for five or six years. Years had gone by and I just, every time the my primary care doctor would say, well, have you been to the gynecologist? I'd say, no, yeah, I'll schedule that and never schedule it. And so years went by where I just didn't go. And actually to this day, I, I won't go. I won't go to a gynecologist. I have a lot of fear and anxiety about it. And, you know, I worry about my health, but I just can't bring myself to do it yet. It has hurt my family. It has um, essentially, you know, ruined my life. I have flashbacks all the time of this person. I have flashbacks of the event itself. I'm hypervigilant. I'm scared I'm going to run into him at the grocery store. Or um, I work in the field of public child welfare, so I go into hospitals in the area. And I always have, you know, my eyes wide open looking around, worrying that I'm going to see him. Um, But to be honest, I think if I do see him, I'm going to tell him off because I'm no longer in that vulnerable position, being in labor and hooked up to all of this, you know, IVs and monitors. So I'm, I'm not vulnerable anymore. So there's a part of me that still has the strength that if I do see him, I'm, not, I'm going to tell him off. But I haven't seen him. <laughs> not yet. And so I'll handle that if it happens, but it has um, taken a toll on my health, mental health and physical health. It's impacted my children, impacted my marriage, as I mentioned. At this point, I'm so furious about it and just want to put it out there so that other women can possibly prevent something like this from happening to them. Sometimes these doctors will do a membrane sweep 
or cervical exam that's unnecessary. They do it because they're taught to practice this way, I believe, but sometimes not all gynecologists are gynecologists for the right reasons. And so they do use these things to uh, confuse the situation. And it really worked in my case because when he broke my water, immediately it became an emergency. And he really did take the focus off of what he did by doing that. And I believe that was his intention. I do believe that he stalked me because he was in earlier that evening with some students. I think he put together that my husband would be leaving with the younger child and I was in a private room alone. I really feel that it was very thought out by him. And I think that he intended for my water to break because those sweeps were repeated. And I, you know, just want women to know that they don't have to accept or, you know, submit to any kind of exam you know, dial 911 if that's the case and it feels like the person's coercing you like I was coerced, that would be the best course of action is to probably dial 911 and let someone know you're being coerced. You know, in addition to it being a sexual assault and a trauma, it definitely turned into a medical trauma because at this point I, I can't see a hospital. It's hard for me for my work when I go in, but at least I go in in a place of authority with a badge on and I have a certain level of power. But when I'm not at work, I don't like to see TV shows with hospitals or doctors. I stay away from all that. I think that the medical trauma piece of it is there in addition to the sexual assault because of the process that he, he imposed on me. And you know, certainly if there are women that have a history of trauma, something like a membrane sweep or a cervical exam can trigger that and can also turn something into a medical trauma. I just feel that, you know, doctors in general need to be trauma informed because even if they have the best intentions and they're not going in there to sexually assault someone, like in my case, you can trigger you know, something else in a patient, especially if you're delivering babies and you're dealing with, you know, women's private areas, you would hope that doctors would not coerce procedures or coerce decisions. I definitely, you know, feel strongly about doctors being trauma-informed. And, you know, doctors use these things to cover up mistakes too. <laughs> You know, and in my case, none of this was documented. Not until many years later when I ordered my medical records, that's when the awakening began for me because I went through all the records and couldn't find any documentation about this exam. Couldn't find any documentation of my report to the nurse. And then I really started to panic. And that's when I went to the police and filed a police report because I was, I kept thinking, well, I must, someone will give me an answer. Like, you know, they had to do this check because, or, but I never got any concrete answers that made any sense. Looking back now and knowing what I know now, it certain, certainly was not a check for dilation because that's not what a check for dilation is. And the person left and gave me no information at all whatsoever about this check. At best, it was a procedure where you were coerced and not informed. And Absolutely not disrespectfully. informed. Completely disrespectfully. And, you know, this person obviously felt a sense of power in his position. And I was alone. And I was coerced. And it's really terrifying when I think back about it, that that was able, that someone was, a, I'm an educated woman and someone was able to coerce me. You know, I always thought of myself as a strong, independent woman and here this person was able to come in and do this to me and coerce me and here I am and I'm asking questions the whole time and I'm still submitting to this. And that's part of probably why I still beat myself up over it. So what happened when you followed up years later with a complaint to the hospital? 
So after I got my medical records and I made a report to the police, I actually started doing the counseling and I actually made a geographical uh, location change. I felt like I wanted to get as far away from the area I was living in. You know, I didn't want to drive by the hospital. I actually went across the country for, I had an opportunity to do some work in my field and had worked for about a year or so in the state of California. But I found that my symptoms got worse when I was away and that my anger was increasing. And I said, you know, filing the police report was not enough. I need to go back and I need to go back to the hospital and try to get answers. I did make a report to the hospital initially, but they never got back to me. I spoke to the patient patient satisfaction director, and I gave her all my information, my report, my uh, medical records, and she said she would get back to me, and she never did. So uh, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to insist that the hospital get me some answers. So I wrote up um, a victim impact statement with all the details of the assault and I called and made an appointment with the patient services director, handed her a copy of my statement. She read it and immediately she seemed disturbed by it and she seemed you know, very uh, worried she indicated to me that she would contact the president of the hospital and the medical director of the hospital and that the hospital would look into it. Um, I think it's worth saying that at this point you had found out that this guy was the head of the department. So yes, I did find out that at the time when this assault occurred, when he came into my room, he was actually a resident. And I think he didn't want me to know that he was a resident because obviously I would have said, oh, no, no, I definitely don't want to be checked by a resident, you know. Um, So he was a resident at the time. And at this point, he had been so many years later, he had been promoted to be the the head of the department and the head, the chairperson. And what did you find out about the name tag? Like there was definitely some question there about whose name was on the name tag. So I found out that the person's name on the name tag was actually a student, a medical student. And uh, that medical student actually practices psychiatry in another state. And I realized that I put it all together and realized that this resident that came in was taking these students around and certainly had access to the tags and uh, misrepresented himself using the student's tag. So I eventually had a meeting at the hospital. Uh, They indicated to me that they were doing, do an internal investigation and that they were gonna hire outside counsel to conduct this investigation because the person, of course, that did it is still there. And the nurse that was assigned to me is still there. They called me in for an interview. I went through the whole detailed interview of what happened, them asking me questions and so forth. They seemed initially, you know, interested in getting to the bottom of it. You know, they seemed sincere, but then come to find out um, when they called me in for a meeting to discuss the conclusion of their investigation, that totally changed their whole demeanor changed. I was the villain, uh, you know, I was the bad guy and, you know, this Dr. B needed protecting. They really attacked my character. They suggested that uh, maybe I was asleep. They, you know, said things like, well, uh, you know, women in labor, their waters break and that's just normal. And, you know, they speculated about different reasons and and possibilities and that certainly further angered me also i found out at that point that when i did order my records and requested all my records i didn't receive all my records i was handed a fetal monitor strip 
recording because uh, during this time, and I may have ne neglected to mention, he had the fetal monitor unhooked. He unhooked it. And I think that may have been to cover up evidence because I think when you experience a membrane sweep, you can see it on the monitor. So he managed to unhook the monitor. That was kept from me and the nursing notes were never given to me, even though I requested all of this information initially. And so at the final meeting where they discussed the conclusions, they gave me the uh, fetal monitor strip and you can see where it shut off exactly during the time that I reported the assault happening. Um, it's just off. It's like it was on for, you know, 38 hours and only during, you know, midnight to 2.15 a.m. was it off. I do recall the nurse that was assigned to me coming in and questioning, why is this off? And I said, well, he turned it off. And she said, well, this isn't supposed to be off. And she turned it back on. So you can see that on the fetal monitor strip. That was kept from me by the hospital. Also, the nursing notes. There are 30 hours of nursing notes, and the only missing portion is the portion between midnight and 2.15. No notes, nothing. They kept those two documents from me, and then only after, you know, meeting with them and insisting, you know, I need all my records, you know, are there any other records? After the fact, they finally gave me those two pieces, those two documents, and I was able to see that it corroborated what I had, what I was saying, because I said, you know, for around midnight, it was about 2.15 when I finally called my husband, and all this was present in the records, including the missing documentation uh, in the nursing notes from midnight to 2.15. Just, it, it either looked like someone deleted it or just, there was just nothing there. So I was pretty upset when I finally looked at all those records and realized, you know, that this was kept from me, that I started to realize the hospital holding back these documents from me and also from, you know, the, the police because I had, you know, reconnected with the police um, upon having to go through this internal investigation. And um, that was pretty upsetting. Yeah, like I said, their demeanor changed. Uh, they were very mean and nasty at that last meeting. They insinuated that, you know, I had some sort of, some sort of motive, <laughs> you know. So many years had gone by. The statute of limitations here in PA for a civil suit is two years. That had long passed, so that certainly wasn't my, my motivation. My motivation was to try to heal and get answers and I never got those. And I just was re-traumatized by the investigative process that the hospital conducted. One positive thing is I, you know, was able to get a hold of those two documents that were being held back prior. We only have a couple minutes left. Okay. Um, um, I, I, they sent me a letter saying, you know, that basically they spoke to everybody who was still at the hospital and involved in my care and no one could corroborate what I was saying. It's like, but my complaints, initial complaints were going directly to the, to the alleged perpetrator because he was in charge and he did nothing. So I didn't realize that he was the head of the department until later. So when I was, made my initial complaint to the hospital, nothing came of it. That's why they never got back to me. And then I realized that those complaints were going directly to him. And that's why nothing happened. There was no uh, response. And only when I pushed and insisted and um, during this internal investigation where they hired the uh, outside counsel was when, you know, they, they somewhat had someone else take a look at it besides him. They sent me a letter stating that they could not, you know, corroborate you know, my account. I sent them a response back uh, outlining the discrepancies in the fetal monitor strip as well as the nursing notes. And, you know, I, being as though I didn't have those two documents, 
and I was reporting the exact times of the assault, I couldn't have known, you know, I'm not psychic, so I couldn't have known if I didn't have the, the fetal monitor strip and the nursing notes, I couldn't have known what time it was unless it really happened. And there are the big gaps in those two documents that uh, corroborate the times that I reported to the police and initially to the hospital. So I didn't get those notes until the end and I was able to pinpoint exactly the, the timing according to these documents that I had never seen. So I couldn't have known that those documents had this information, you know, gap it during the, that exact period of time unless it happened. So they, I outlined that in the letter and I, you know, expressed how I felt, sent that and um, that was it. I consulted with multiple attorneys who, you know, told me they couldn't help me. It had, too many years had passed. The police closed the case and told me that, well, we can't decipher if, you know, it was just a regular thing that the doctor needed to do versus an assault. And, you know, we can't prove that it was something outside of medical care. And that kind of upset me because I thought, well, you know, even more reason, you know, for the police to believe that something happened, not that they didn't believe, but for them to, to justify that something happened, being as though it was a gynecologist, you know, they're in your private parts. So it makes sense that, you know, they can easily assault you. And, you know, it's not like you're going to an eye doctor. They have access, you know, and to them, it was like, well, you know, we don't, we can't do anything too many years has passed. And, you know, even there, even without the years, we can't say beyond a reasonable doubt that the person wasn't in there really checking on something medical. So you have something that happened and the only people who really know what happened are the person it happened to and the person who did it. And that's all there is to it. Yeah. And nobody can prove anything. And it's your word against his. Essentially. Yes. Um, I do receive counseling through the Victim Assistance Center in Montgomery County. Uh, they've been incredibly helpful. They believe me. They've written letters for me. They've advocated for me. They assigned me a legal advocate in addition to a therapist. And uh, both of those women have done an outstanding job. And yeah, yeah, essentially, <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. So I know that you've been in touch with another survivor of sexual assault by an OBGYN, and you're also in talks with a state investigator. So can you just kind of close the loop on this for us before we have to go? Because unfortunately, we are pretty much out of time. Yes. I have uh, spoken to Marissa, who is another survivor of sexual assault by an OBGYN during her pregnancy. I have to say that I was feeling very much alone until I was able to connect with her and she was able to offer me some support and guidance. And I felt a little better that I wasn't the only one that, that, had, that had experienced something like this and found her to be extremely uh, empowering after talking to her. For anyone who doesn't know, Marissa Hochstetter is the only named plaintiff on the lawsuit against Columbia University and New York Presbyterian Hospital after Dr. Richard Haddon there had been sexually assaulting patients for years and eventually was reported, pled guilty to a couple of charges, and then a new group of plaintiffs has now brought a civil suit in relation to that. Yes, because That's the hospital true. covered it up for they cover it years. up. These hospitals will cover things up and they have no conscience about it, no conscience about it at all. Uh, they will protect themselves at any cost. It doesn't matter what what or who you are. Uh, I've also reached out and filed a complaint with the state board here in Pennsylvania and I actually had an investigator come to my home to interview me with regard to this. 
and he's investigating and I just, you know, hope and pray that he can get answers and uh, possibly do something about this man's license. Yeah. And I think it's worth, it's worth saying that, you know, as much as I will fully admit that I know that the complaint, the, the state board complaint process is often useless. At least if people keep complaining, there will be a record of multiple complaints against the same person so that, you know, maybe 10, 12, 13 years later, when someone comes forward and you get an investigator who really wants to find out what happened, they can see that there have been multiple complaints before, then that could really be helpful and, you know, in, in getting these things taken more seriously. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to file a complaint. I initially, I was a little worried, but then I thought, no, I'll never forgive myself if I don't do it. And this happens to someone else. So I encourage women to file a complaint if anything goes wrong or they don't feel comfortable. And I certainly encourage women to go and file a police report or police complaint as well. Well, Catherine, we are definitely out of time now. I want to say thank you so much. This is a big deal. It's very brave of you. I've also interviewed Marissa Hochstetter. And so her, her episode will be up um, pretty close to yours, actually. So for anybody listening, you can, you can also hear Marissa's story. So thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't a lot of shows like this one out there. And one big reason is it has never been my goal to get corporate or mainstream ad money. Nope. We are supported by folks who are part of the change. In fact, the show you're listening to now is made possible by Evidence-Based Birth, your go-to source for high-quality, unbiased information on the latest evidence-based care practices for childbirth. We love Evidence-Based Birth for its radical approach to changing maternity care, taking the evidence out of paywalled journals and translating it right into the hands of parents, birth workers, and medical professionals so they can make change from the ground up. Like Evidence-Based Birth, you can help us keep Birth Aloud Radio an independent voice challenging a powerful status quo. Email us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com to find out how. Again, that's birthaloudradio at gmail.com.